0: Evidence and answers. Atheists argue that Darwin's theory provides the best and most comprehensive explanation for the origin and diversity of life. Is this the case? Or are there major flaws in Darwin's theory? Does intelligent design offer a better scientific explanation to the origin of life? Many argue intelligent design is religion and not science. Does philosophy and theology have a role in the world of scientific study? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Fazal Rana, answer these questions and more challenges presented against the existence of God. See if the Christian worldview contradicts or best explains the data of science. Now let's conclude this interview.
1: So really, they really have not been able to answer he's argument, yet, is what you're saying, essentially.
2: Right. They they have answered mm. the argument in abstraction, but they have failed to to demonstrate how that mechanism, co- a, a biochemical system. I've yet to see a compelling argument towards that end.
1: Mm. Yeah. You know, I was at a debate there at the uh, Southern Methodist University. I forgot who the naturalist scientist was, and I he said he's argument is unscientific. And so at the Q&A time, I, I went up to the mic and I said, you know, Dr. so, you said it was unscientific. Could you explain to us what you mean by that? What do you mean that it's unscientific? And uh, this was maybe four or five years ago. He, he looked at me and he said, well, it's not flexible. You know, there needs to be flexibility. And I was really puzzled with that. I, I just said, well, isn't that the nature of truth? I mean, two plus two equals four. That's not flexible here. It's very rigid. Oh, that's what he said. It's too rigid. It's not flexible. And I was really puzzled. So it, it doesn't seem they, they've been able to answer Behe's argument adequately there, as, as you're saying here. Is that what you're noticing here?
2: Yes. And, you know, in the, the book, Thinking About Evolution, there's another approach that I take to show why I think Behe's argument stands. And it has to do with the nature of the process again, that evolutionary biologists are appealing to to account for irreducibly complex systems, which is, again, a process where existing designs are co-opted and they're modified to piece together new designs, and that process repeats over and over again until you build an irreducibly complex system. Well, if you think about the nature of that process where you're co-opting existing designs, modifying them, and then cobbling together new designs, you would expect that the systems that are produced through that process would be, in effect, flawed systems that would be imperfect systems, that would be suboptimal systems. And yet, these very systems that supposedly are suboptimal, imperfect, are inspiring engineers to develop new technologies and to solve engineering problems that they previously haven't been able to solve. This is a, an area known as biomimetics and bioinspiration. And the whole idea is that behind this area of engineering, which is one of the hottest areas of engineering today, is that again, we turn to designs in biology to solve engineering problems. Well, think about this. If these designs in biology that are irreducibly complex were cobbled together by evolutionary processes and they're flawed and they're imperfect, then why would anybody in their right minds turn to biology to try to solve an engineering problem. But if these systems are truly designed, if they're truly the work of an intelligent agent, not only will they be irreducibly complex, but they also will be highly optimal systems that would be worthy of study and worthy of, of, of copying to develop new human technologies. And so I think the whole area of biomimetics and bioinspiration, when you couple that with Behe's arguments of irreducible complexity, really form a tight case that these systems truly are the work of a mind because if they were the work of evolution and and this mechanism of co-option they might be irreducibly complex but they surely aren't going to be optimal and valuable for driving technology development
1: yeah i i think i see behe's argument you know as a very tight argument uh, yet to be answered still posing a a formidable challenge. Let's move to another area that you address in the book here, the fossil record. This poses a challenge for Christians. How does it fit into our paradigm? But also, does evolution adequately explain the fossil record?
2: Well, you know, in a very broad sense, an evolutionary biologist could point to the fossil record and say, look, we see different life forms at different eras in Earth's history. And so therefore, it looks as if life has evolved, right? And yet, interestingly enough, prior to Darwin, there were a number of paleontologists who were aware of this feature of the fossil record. But they interpreted it within a creation model or a design framework where they said, well, clearly this history of life on Earth reflects the work of a creator who progressively introduced new life forms at different eras in Earth's history for his purposes. And one of the scientists was the famous geologist, Louis Agassiz, who interpreted the fossil record in that way. So just because we see a progression of life throughout Earth's history from simple to complex, or we see different life forms at different eras, doesn't necessarily mean the only way to understand the fossil record is through uh, an evolutionary history. But then on top of that, when we start looking at some of the details of the fossil record, we see a number of features that are troubling and to me what is perhaps most troubling is that every time we see innovation in life's history that is documented in the fossil record it happens explosively without any kind of evidence for intermediary grades so for example when life first appears on earth life shows up explosively out of nowhere there's no evolutionary history that seemingly precedes it as soon as the earth can support life life appears on the earth. And the very first cells are bacterial cells, archaeal cells, so they're rather simple, morphologically speaking, but metabolically speaking, they're incredibly complex. And again, they show up out of nowhere. When we see what is known as the origin of eukaryotic cells, which is a different cell type that is critical for building multicellular organisms, this is an event known as the eukaryotic big bang, Where out of nowhere, eukaryotic organisms show up, where there's, again, no seeming evolutionary history. Or when it comes to, for example, the origin of animals, this is called the Cambrian Explosion. In a geological instant, animal forms show up explosively, and there's no, again, evolutionary history preceding that that documents the emergence of simple multicellular organisms that become increasingly complex and increasingly diversified. or or when we look at the history of vertebrates, there are these radiation events where we see the explosive radiation of uh, an explosive diversification of fish, of amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And so this is a pattern that just doesn't fit the evolutionary paradigm. So instead of seeing gradual emergence and gradual transitions as we go from one regime of complexity to another, when we see biological innovation, We see explosive appearances that defy evolutionary explanations.
1: Yes. So explain to us how that would fit in the biblical creation account. As you stated, we have sudden explosions of life at different periods, beginning with the Cambrian explosion, and that's followed by about a dozen series of sudden appearance of, of new forms, you know, in the Silurian you know, I think where reptiles appear and then the Triassic, Jurassic, crustaceous, and, and then mammals appear in the uh, paleo uh, gene era and things. How does all that fit into a biblical model?
2: Well, the, the way I look at it is is to ask the question, what would it look like if a creator intervened to bring about create, his creative work at particular points in life's history? Wouldn't it look like out of nowhere suddenly we would see, again, new, new life forms, we would see biological innovation. And so the pattern that we see is exactly the type of pattern I would expect to see if indeed a creator is involved. And then couple that with another feature that we see in the fossil record that doesn't make a lot of sense to me from an evolutionary perspective, and that is what's called stasis. We see that once major groups appear, they remain largely static and unchanged before they disappear from the fossil record. That's exactly what I would expect if a creator again has introduced these optimal forms in life's history, that they would remain in effect unchanged for vast and significant periods of time. So the patterns that we see in the fossil record to me make more sense as patterns that would be befitting a creator as opposed to patterns that reflect an unguided evolutionary history for life. Yeah, so where would that
1: fit in the Genesis account? Would, would all these epics be occurring in the sixth day or people trying to put that in there in the Genesis account here? Where where would these eras fit?
2: Yeah, I, I think what we're looking at when it comes to the origin of, of different animal forms is probably the fifth in the sixth day of creation. You know, I hold to a, a position known as Old Earth Creation where I view the days in genesis 1 as periods of time and so i see a compatibility between the antiquity of life on earth and the fossil record and the genesis 1 creation account i see them as being fully compatible but for example the event that we were talking about the, the cambrian explosion where we see out of nowhere the sudden appearance of animal life forms. Virtually every animal phyla that we are familiar with shows up in the Cambrian explosion, save for one or two, save for a handful of, of, of animal phyla. So it's a, an incredibly explosive event. Well, the animals that show up in the Cambrian explosion are all marine animals. They are all animals that would have lived in the earth's oceans. And when you look at the, what the text is saying on the fifth day, where God is commanding the waters to teem with life and The word in the original Hebrew that's referring to those life forms would be life forms that would be the swarming life forms, crawling, creeping, swarming life forms. Well, this is exactly the type of life that would have appeared in the Cambrian explosion. And so if the fifth day of creation describes God's creative work for animals in the oceans and it seemingly implies the sudden explosive appearance of animal forms, I see a, a remarkable correspondence between the Cambrian Explosion and the fifth day of creation. So not only does the Cambrian Explosion affirm creation, but it also seems to affirm that the scientific credibility of the Genesis 1 account.
1: Yeah, I think it fits well you know, into the biblical model. If you take what's called an old earth or progressive creation position, I, I think our young earth friends, there's – it's a little problematic for them, wouldn't it, this particular model? Many that I talk to would attribute the fossil record uh, to perhaps the Genesis flood, but I find a little difficulty in that because if it is the result of a flood, we would expect these fossils to kind of be random, all kind of mixed up together. But what we find throughout the world is a consistent layering you know, of these fossils from uh You know the organisms we see in the cambrian explosion and then as we move up the strata we are seeing more and more uh complex forms in these sudden explosions of life would you agree with that
2: yeah that's really a very good point that you're making pat and that would be exactly the point that i would make and i think that you know to, to me the larger point would be so oftentimes christians feel as if the only way to read genesis 1 is you know from what we would call a young Earth perspective where the days refer to 24 hour periods of time but again the original hebrew indicates that the word that's translated as day yom can mean a period of time as opposed to 24 hours and if that's the case then you could view an older creationist model as being a literal reading of genesis 1 and one that matches the scientific record in a remarkable way i mean even before I became a Christian. I remember in college I was an agnostic, and I had a friend whose father was a Methodist minister. And so he and I would get into all these interesting conversations. And one day we were reading Genesis 1 together. And this was the first time that I'd actually even opened up the Bible and even read through Genesis 1. And I can remember talking to my friend saying, David, if day was a period of time, isn't it amazing how the Genesis 1 account? For the Earth's history and life's history corresponds with the geological record and the fossil record. I was, as a non-Christian, even amazed at what I saw to be the scientific accuracy of Genesis one with the provision that again, day was a, a period of time. And so, you know, to our friends who hold to a young earth perspective, you know, there's a real strength in the older perspective. Not only is it biblically permissible, but it corresponds with the scientific record in a remarkable way. And I think it makes much better sense of the fossil record, frankly, than a a global flood.
1: You know, but some may argue, they say, well, you know, Fuzz, if you accept this fossil record here, you know, the Cambrian explosion and Silurian and, and all of this, aren't you opening the door to evolution or Darwin's theory?
2: I guess my answer to that would be not really, because, again, you know, just because you accept the antiquity of the Earth and the antiquity of life on Earth doesn't mean that you have to accept an evolutionary view of life. Again, it's very reasonable to think that there was a creator that was responsible for orchestrating life's history, and we see, again, clear indications in the nature of the fossil record that it's got to be something other than just strictly evolutionary mechanisms that explain you know, the history of life on Earth.
1: Right, and it's not following... Uh, Darwin's tree of life what we have here as you stated is just sudden explosions of different life forms suddenly appearing you know beginning with the Cambrian and then uh, just a sudden explosion after that and then another one and another one what you're saying here we see in the fossil record not Darwin's tree of life here
2: yeah that's exactly right and and so you know, really the the case for biological evolution rises and falls on what does the scientific data say and what do we predict based on the nature of of evolutionary theory. That's really what determines whether or not someone would embrace or reject the evolutionary paradigm. You know, the antiquity of the earth is, in a sense, uh, irrelevant to whether or not one embraces, you know, an evolutionary paradigm. And the fact of the matter is, You know, the time that's available based on what we see in the fossil record for key transitions in life's history is not enough for evolutionary mechanisms. You know, when it comes to the origin of life, for example, the traditional evolutionary view was that life's origin would require hundreds of millions of years, if not up to a billion years, to transpire. And what we see is that the time available based on the geological record and the fossil record for the original life is on the order of tens of millions of years not hundreds of millions or even close to a billion years so the time frame that's available for the origin of life is ridiculously short when you think about it from an evolutionary perspective
1: yeah i believe it was you or was it stephen meyer that said it, if we have an hour clock 60 minute clock 59 minutes there's very little going on the earth and then it's in that last minute boom you've got this sudden explosion of life that appears upon the earth is that, is that correct was that you or was that someone else uh, that
2: wasn't me it must oh. have been steve meyer but okay. uh, an example that that i often use is that if you think of life's history as a football field and you just assume that you're starting on the goal line on your own goal line you'd have to drive the football 85 yards down the field inside your opponent's 15-yard line before you actually see the Cambrian explosion taking place. So for the first 85% of life's history, it's essentially single-celled organisms. And then all of a sudden, in a a, a window of time that would be more narrow than like a yard marker on a football field, the Cambrian explosion happens. So that gives you a a sense for how dramatic the event is. And so it's remarkable to think that It took 85% of life's history to go from bacterial cells to colonial aggregates of cells. And then you went, go from colonial aggregates to a wide range of animal phyla that have organ systems that are integrated with each other, incredibly complex organisms that that could happen in, in a relatively narrow window of time in, in just, you know, uh, tens of millions of years at the most. Most likely the camera explosion happened in under 5 million years. So life happened very quickly.
1: Fuzz, maybe the last question we'll talk about, because we hear a lot about this, is monkey and human DNA. You know, there are arguments that it's anywhere from 98% identical. And so doesn't this show that we have evolved from chimps and apes?
2: Yeah, and, and there's a number of ways to tackle that. The first thing is to point out that in many respects to say that that just because we share 98% genetic similarity with the apes is that somehow that humans and apes must be related in some way. You know, for example, uh, daffodils as an illustration have 35% genetic similarity between the daffodils and humans. So does that mean that we're 35% daffodil or there's an 80% similarity between the rat genome and the human genome, does that mean that we're 80% rat? And so in many respects, to say that just because we have a 98% similarity with chimps is that there's somehow this biological connection between humans and chimps. That that comparison is relatively meaningless. And in fact, when we look at the places where we do differ from chimpanzees, it's not so much in the genes that are present, but it's rather how the genes are used. This is called gene expression. And the gene expression in the human brain and the chimp brain is radically different and and it can account for the significant cognitive differences between humans and chimps. But, you know, when I look at the the Genesis 2 creation account, it tells us that human beings were made from the dust of the earth. And it also tells us that the animals were made from the dust of the earth as well. And that says to me that as, as somebody who holds to the, to scripture, that, I would expect going into it that there should be biological similarity between human beings and other creatures. And so just because we see a 98% similarity between humans and chimp doesn't necessarily reflect an evolutionary history. We could see it as reflecting shared design elements that we have, again, shared designs with other animals. And that explains in part our, our genetic similarity. It doesn't have to be understood as being Again, evidence for common descent.
1: Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fazale Rana here and got a great book out, Thinking About Evolution, 25 Questions Christians Want Answered here, uh, published by Reasons to Believe. Outstanding book here. A lot of the issues that we talked about, he expounds on a lot more. Him and the contributing editors here, Contributing Scientists. To this particular book so outstanding book here uh fuzz what's the biggest takeaway that you want
2: for the
1: readers of this book
2: yeah well you know so oftentimes i hear people say that the only reason why christians are skeptical about evolution is for biblical and theological reasons it has nothing to do with the science at hand and what we wanted to do in the book is show that the author team three of us were scientists one of us was a philosopher of science is that the the author team who are, again, scientists, are expressing scientific concerns with the theory of evolution, more so than expressing biblical or theological concerns, and that there really are good scientific reasons to be skeptical of the grand claim uh, presented by evolutionary biologists, and that is evolutionary mechanisms exclusively can explain the origin and the design and the history of life What we show is that there's many places where, when it comes to big E evolution, you know, macroevolution, there's plenty of good scientific reasons to be skeptical of that claim. And so yes, indeed, there's ample evidence for microevolution, for speciation, those mechanisms that produce those kinds of evolutionary changes cannot account for macroevolutionary changes. And, and again, and that a creation model can account for the, the data just the data that many people cite as evidence for evolution, a creation model can accommodate that data comfortably.
1: Yes, fantastic. Uh, You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fazale Rana here. Faz. if people want more information regarding the things that we talked about and more resources or to get in contact with you folks, where can they go for more information?
2: People can go to our website at reasons.org. That's probably the easiest way to to learn more about our organization and to get a hold of uh, a lot of the resources that we have. Most of what we have available on our website is accessible for free, but it also lets you know about the book resources and other types of resources that we also have as well. If you have questions about how science and faith fit together, again, I would invite you to visit our website, reasons.org.
1: Yes, that's an outstanding website. they written by a great team of scientists. I'm. If you've got college students or graduate students in the arena of science trying to figure out how to put it together, I'm always pointing people uh, to that website there at reasons.org. Well, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fazale Rana of Reasons to Believe, an outstanding organization helping Christians put together faith and science, and his new book, Thinking About Evolution. So, Faz, thanks again for being with us here on evidence and answers
2: Thanks for having me, pat.
0: that's all the time we have for today thank you for joining us here on evidence and answers radio broadcast we hope you enjoyed today's show if you would like pat to speak at your church bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference give him a call locally in hawaii that number is 483-0586 or you may contact them through the Evidence & Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners, For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. i yeah.